On today's podcast, we have two Medics Money experts answering listeners' questions that have been sent in by you, our listeners. So we talk about uh, the annual allowance and why it's still a problem despite the recent changes. We talk about something called the lifetime allowance and why inflation and the freezing of this allowance might be a problem and what that means for doctors. We talk about what the role of private pensions are, if any, for NHS doctors. And finally, we talk about the importance of life cover and family protection, including a pretty detailed discussion of what benefits the NHS pension provides there. So thank you so much for sending in your questions. We're getting through them and we really love answering them. And I know this episode is going to be useful to so many of you. If you are enjoying the podcast, it would really help us to spread the word by leaving a rating and if you have time, a review. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. As ever, this podcast is for entertainment only and does not represent any form of financial, legal or accounting advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's Medics Money podcast, we are joined by two veterans of the Medics Money podcast, Andy Powell and Nick Nesbitt. Now, um, obviously, regular listeners will be familiar with uh, who you are and why you're qualified to talk about today's uh, really complicated subject. But Nick, do you want to just uh, remind the viewers who you are? Yeah. Hi, Tommy. Thanks for that. Um, I am Nick Nesbitt, a partner in the financial planning team at Mazar, and I specialise in advising doctors and other healthcare professionals uh, around all the complexities of the NHS pension and other associated financial planning issues. I am also married to a nurse and a midwife, so I have a little bit of first-hand experience yeah, hi, I'm Andy Powell. I'm also uh, in the healthcare team at Mazars. My speciality is dealing with accounts and tax for GPs and consultants and other healthcare professionals. Um, equally like Nick, I'm, I'm also married to a, a healthcare professional, this time a GP. Um, so I have an extra interest in general practice. Awesome. Well, one thing I just wanted to say before we get started is you've both got a vested interest in helping the medical profession for reasons that you just outlined. But just thanks for your time in coming on the podcast, because so many people find this so useful and it does take a lot of work to put together and the questions are complex. So on behalf of our listeners, thanks so much for your time. But let's just get straight into the nitty gritty, shall we? So lots of people uh, sort of doctors are saying to us, oh, the annual allowance is no longer a problem because the thresholds have been tweaked and I don't need to worry about it. So, Andy, do you want to tell us a bit more about why that might not be true and uh, anything else? Uh, yeah, um, thanks, Tommy. So, yeah, well, just a quick recap, really. Um, uh, in, in the um, 2021 20, uh, budget, um, so the year, the, the tax years, which runs from April through to March, um, what they, the government did change was the uh, annual allowance calculation around the tapering. So previously, we had a situation if you earned uh, above a certain limit, and that limit was quite complicated how it was going to be calculated, um, you no longer got the full 40,000 allowance, but it got tapered down. Um, what they did do is uh, change the limit. So they moved it from £110,000 of, of net income up to £200,000. 
with the idea really that it was going to take the tapering problem away from, I think something like 96 or 97% of health professionals, um, which it has done, which is good. Um, so it has meant that most, most GPs and most consultants or most higher earners get the full £40,000 allowance uh, going forward. However, um, that doesn't mean you don't have an annual allowance charge um, because of growth within the NHS scheme, um, be it uh, as a consultant or a GP. If you are still a higher earner, um, then you could well exceed the 40000 um, threshold in any year and any excess is still taxed on you. Um, so it just doesn't mean it hasn't gone away. It just means it still has to be assessed. Um, and for those um, who are still luckily in the 1995 scheme, particularly on the consultant side, they're linked to a final salary basis. So that can result in some quite high growth charges. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so people are still being caught by it. I think also probably the point I would also say at the moment is um, be very careful with the figures. Well, and we've always said this and everyone who's been on your podcast has said this, be careful with the figures because we're certainly seeing some growth figures coming out from the, the pensions agency, which don't really stack up to people's earnings. Now, that's not necessarily the pensions agency's fault. Um, uh, the, the pension system resolves around good data in and good data out. So if they've been told by hospital trust the wrong level of earnings or the wrong level of hours, um, then it can produce some some quite high growth figures. So again, the, the situation of looking at those pension savings statements still exists and, and always just checking, sense checking whether that growth stacks up um, to you. So yeah, principally the, the allowance hasn't gone away. Yeah, okay. And obviously the NHS is struggling, I think it's fair to say at the moment, with the waiting lists at the longest they've ever been. And the government has announced a few sort of measures to combat these waiting lists. I mean... Any issues around that um, that you can foresee with getting the work done? I think, Tommy, it's a, it's a question we're, we're getting a lot at the moment is people are starting to see more options for doing uh, additional sessions and, and the immediate question in, in hospital's mind is what's the impact from a pension perspective? And what's actually sort of interesting at the moment is we're seeing that um, throughout COVID uh, and obviously different people have had different experiences, but some people have put in a lot of overtime over COVID and uh, and we're seeing in quite a few cases that that overtime has been recorded as pensionable. So Andy and I have both had clients come to us in the last few weeks, um, consultants who are having their overtime from COVID, which should have been non-pensionable, included in their pensionable pay and creating huge pension um, growth figures because it looks as if that whole time equivalent pensionable pay has stepped up um, notably. And that's wrong. And if people don't sort of get that correct, they're going to end up with a sizable tax charge, but ultimately won't end up with their pensionable pay remaining high longer term. So I think that's just a bit of a something to check looking back to probably the 2021 tax year and the pension saving statements that are coming out of that. I think moving forward, generally on the whole, a lot of these um, additional initiatives that are going to be offered will will be non-pensionable. Um, so if they're non-pensionable, then people shouldn't have to worry too much about the impact on their on their pension saving statements. Either side of the, the growth they see in their pension shouldn't be affected. However, what people do need to be really careful of is those, those tapering limits that Andy was just talking about. So 
if you take on a lot of additional work and it pushes you up towards or above that that two hundred thousand pound tapering limit, um, then you can very quickly quickly find yourself in that position where you're over the two hundred. You've got a significant pension growth figure, and actually your annual allowance um, has been reduced because of the tapering mechanism, and you do find yourself paying significant. Um, uh, annual allowance tax charges as a result of that sort of slightly circular motion that we've talked about um, previously on these podcasts. Um, I think the other the other point we were just going to raise um, on uh, on the annual allowance is um, GPs um, are like we're expecting GPs for the twenty which he did specifically for the twenty one twenty two tax year, i.e. the one that we're currently in to see some quite um, significant pension growth figures coming out when those numbers are released late in 2022. And that's a factor of um, the interplay between the September 2020 CPI inflation figure and the much higher September 2021 CPI inflation figure. So um, there's not a huge amount that can be done, um, but it's something that, that GPs in particular, because of the nature of their pensions relative to consultants uh, and other uh, medical professionals, something they definitely need to be aware of that's coming down the line in, in next year's pension savings statements. Yeah, I mean, certainly having modelled it for quite a few people now for 21-22, we're seeing, as Nick says, seeing some sizable figures, and uh, which are going to be way above the 40,000 uh, growth um allowance and and what that's going to do is not only those that have historically been caught by um, annual allowance will obviously have an annual allowance charge but actually it's going to stuck a lot of people who have never been caught by it potentially in um which is going to be problematic given the the poor state of the records at the moment and, and getting accurate information so yeah it's um it's definitely not gone away as a problem yeah. Is it worth going into the detail? Maybe it's too much detail just to explain why specifically the inflation uh, inflation being high, uh, CPI, uh, is an issue because of the way that it affects the growth in the scheme? Yeah, so I can, I can pick that one up. Um, so it all comes down to the way in which the pension growth figures are calculated and due to certain quirks in the system. Um, if you have low CPI figures in one year and high CPI figures in the next, it can lead to lead to these high positions. Essentially, what happens, um, Tommy, is that um, your the size of your pension at the start of the year um, is, is increased by a measure of, of CPI to allow for the fact that pension naturally grows with CPI. And then they take that enhanced starting value and they set that against the value of your pension at the end of the year, i.e. once you've accrued that one further year of pension, and they minus the smaller number, i.e. the starting value, off the bigger number, and that gives you your pension growth in the year. That's how it works. Now, the problem comes is that the starting value is increased by a different year to the increase that is actually applied to your pension benefit. So if we just take this year, 2021-22, as an example, people's pension benefits will increase in line with the September 2021 CPI figure, which is a pretty high figure because of all the inflationary um, factors that we hear about on the news. However, the starting value 
will only increase in line with the September 2020 CPI figure, which we were in the midst of a pandemic. Inflation was relatively low at that point in time. So what we've got is people's pension benefits growing quite significantly in this current year, but the, the starting value only being uplifted by a relatively modest amount. So that's going to mean that the size of the pension growth in this year will seem quite significant. If inflation, if people are still following this, they've done very well. But uh, if inflation then reverts back down to sort of more normal levels for September 2022, what you will see is the high um, September 2021 figure being used as, as an increase to the starting value and people's actual pension benefits not going up by as much. But the problem with the system is that there is no smoothing um, effect. It doesn't sort of allow for the fact that you can get these big spikes in one year and almost nothing in the next year. Um, so it's something that, that we would definitely say needs looking at. Um, but at the moment, that's the rules that we play with. Awesome. I think it is useful to get uh, deeper into the details. I think it's why our listeners come on our po- listen to our podcast. So that was super useful. And obviously, you've listened to our budget podcast where Ed was going on about inflation and the effect in terms of a 3% pay rise, which is almost certainly going to be a real terms pay cut because of inflation. So inflation affects loads of stuff. And I think inflation affects what we're going to talk about next, really, because lifetime allowance, again, if you listen to our budget podcast, you'll know that we talked about the freezing of the lifetime allowance. So tell us what this means for doctors, especially those that are approaching the twilight of their career. Yeah, so as Andy started with the annual allowance, probably just, just worth spending a minute or two just recapping on, on the lifetime allowance and the concept. So Whereas the annual allowance that we just talked about is a limit on the amount that the pension can grow by in any one year. In any one year, sorry, the lifetime allowance is a limit on how big um, your pension can get um, prior to retirement without there being some tax charges applied on the pension. So one of the first questions I always get is, well, does that mean I have to stop accruing at some point in time? Or if I go over a certain limit, the whole pension subject to a massive tax charge? And the answer to, to both of those questions is, is no. Um, you can continue to accrue above this lifetime allowance. Um, it's just that when you do go over the limit, you start to um, see some tax charges at retirement, but they are only applied to the amount that's over this lifetime allowance. So, just as I was say, recapping on the lifetime allowance, it was introduced in 2006 at a pretty high level. And to be honest with you, back then, very few medical professionals were caught by the lifetime allowance. And then pretty much since then, there's been these gradual reductions in the lifetime allowance until we got to a point in 2016 when the limit was, was 1 million. Um, and then we had, I think, two or three years, three years where it increased in line with CPI. So that's your point about inflation, Tommy. We used to see inflation the increases to the lifetime allowance. But then in the budget earlier this year, it was announced that the lifetime allowance was going to be frozen at 1.073 million through to April 2026. Um, so... That meant that whilst people's pension benefits are likely to continue to grow, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a second, the lifetime allowance that they're assessed against would remain at that 1.073 million level. 
Now, one final question that a lot of people will be asking now is, well, I'm, I know I've got a pension of £40,000 a year and some elements of a lump sum. How does that equate into a sort of 1.073 million um, figure? And the answer for once is relatively straightforward in that you just times the, the starting pension, either the pension that you're paid when you retire, by 20 and you add on the lump sum that you receive. And that is the capital value that's assessed against the lifetime allowance. Um, so that, that's hopefully a, a bit of a clear recap on the lifetime allowance. So reflecting on, on this capping that's been brought in, what, what we're seeing is that especially in these years where inflation is, is quite high, people's um, lifetime allowance values are going forward quite quickly. Now, the size of their pension is, in, is increasing quicker in years like this one than it would have done in a lower inflation year. But this lifetime allowance that they're going to be assessed against is, is frozen and is not increasing at all. So what it's doing is it's pushing the likelihood of people suffering lifetime allowance tax charges up and up. And I think most consultants and, and GP partners and higher earning um, medical professionals now, we would expect most people to run into a situation where they are in excess of their lifetime allowance if they work to age 60. Um, so... It's definitely something people need to be aware of. The, the next question um, that, that we quite often get is, well, well, what should I do about it? And, and Andy, I don't know if you want to maybe step in at this stage and, and talk, about, um, talk about that side of things. Yeah, so it's, it's probably worth, it's probably the most, one of the fundamental points that always comes out of this is, um, is that point again we always get asked oh, i've reached my lifetime allowance should i come out the pension scheme because i've reached the limit of which it can grow to um and and fundamentally the answer to that is no you shouldn't you should never just come out the pension because of the lifetime allowance um yeah, whilst it's being frozen and the the, the problems that come with it are, are, are not very pleasant um it's one of life's nice problems to have uh very few people in society will have a, a situation where their pension's grown to the lifetime allowance level um, and your pension does still continue to grow once that level's been breached. I think it's 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 worth reiterating that point because I see it too often, particularly on things like Twitter, that you know, which is rife with the some quite toxic pension advice at times um, around you know breach these limits must come out. Um, it really should you really shouldn't do. I think the other consideration, just um, you, you mentioned, Tommy, about those perhaps in the, the twilight of their careers, um, what they should think about doing is, um, firstly, they, they're perhaps in the luckier generations in that there were various protections they could apply for. Um, so particularly the, the one that's still in play is something called Individual Protection 2016. Um, so if your pension fund was above I think one million back then in, in terms of this calculation, uh, you could potentially protect a higher higher figure, albeit up to a maximum of 1.25 million. So we're not talking huge sums. Um, and one of the things also to watch uh, that's coming out of the McLeod um, side of things, um, some older GPs may have had something called enhanced protection, which they may have broken by having to join the 2015 scheme. In fact, they would have broken it because they would effectively join a new scheme at that point in time. But actually with McLeod, there is um, some investigation now as to whether if you go back into the scheme you came out of and therefore don't rejoin the new scheme back in 2022, 
um, so in a couple of months from now, um, when you're forced to join the 2015 scheme, could you actually uh, re-establish your enhanced protection? Um, so those areas do need some exploration, really, for those thinking about retirement. Um, but yeah, I mean, lifetime allowance is problematic. Uh, lifetime allowance is slightly easier to deal with than the allowance because lifetime allowance is predict more predictable and you can see where your pension fund's growing to, whereas annual allowance is because of those inflationary factors and changes in earnings can fluctuate significantly. Awesome. I mean, I think that was such a great explanation of what a lifetime allowance is and then the complexities of it. But I think the key points for me are that, you know, as Andy just said, if you hit a lot of doctors that we, we speak to sort of think once they fit the lifetime allowance, that's it. You know, there's no point being in a pension anymore. Um, that's possibly not the case and you need to run your own numbers. So that was really, really good. I mean, we we get asked a lot as well about private pensions and whether NHS doctors should get a private pension. And it's very difficult to give out well, we can't give out specific financial advice here and everyone needs to do their own research. But Nick, do you want to just tell us a bit about when and if a private pension might make sense for NHS stuff? Yeah. So having just talked about all of these tax charges um, with the annual allowance and the lifetime allowance, um, the obvious point here is, well, why would you then go and look for uh, another pension that would only add to these problems. And, and I think that's that's the crux of um, private pension planning for a lot of doctors. Actually, I get a lot of people coming through Medics Money, a lot of younger doctors saying, look, I've, I've now got to a stage where I'm maybe earning more than I need month in, month out. I'm looking at savings options and the tax relief that's available on on further private pension contributions seems to, seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, and in essence, there's absolute truth in that. If we look at why people on the whole turn to private pensions. It's one, because you get um, good tax relief on contributions that are made, um, and B, because you're building up for the long-term savings that can be used in retirement. However, when you overlay the career of, of, of a doctor or other healthcare professionals on top of that, it's a slightly more sort of nuanced and complicated story um, in that um, you've got to have confidence that the money you're putting into these private pensions, you're going to be able to sort of get back without huge tax charges. And and that's why certainly I'm usually quite reluctant for, for doctors who are on a, a sort of um a fairly high earning career trajectory to go down the route of funding private pensions, because I do think there's a very good chance, given what we've just talked about with the lifetime allowance, that their private pensions will end up being in excess of um, lifetime allowance and therefore will just suffer unwanted tax charges when they get to retirement. When you then build in the fact that once money's in a private pension, it can't be accessed until, well, at the moment, 55, but that's going to go out to age 58. Um, again, I think there's not a very compelling um, reason for many um, for many doctors on the higher earning trajectory to look towards private pensions. However, um, there is another side to, to this, I think, and I guess if we take people who perhaps aren't um, planning to work as a higher earning um, doctor, be it a GP or consultant throughout their career, um, and therefore maybe are less likely to um, 
buffed through the lifetime allowance or less likely to have annual allowance tax charges, then if they have that propensity to save, i.e. they've got available cash to put towards saving and they're happy for that to be very long-term saving, then yes, it can still be a very good use for surplus income. And I do have, it's only a handful, but I do have a handful of medical clients that are funding private pensions. Um, so I guess that's a, a way of sitting on the fence a little bit, Tommy. But I guess just to, just to go a bit further on where it is that those people who are funding pensions are, are doing it, it tends to be, as I said, people not necessarily at the highest levels of earning. And it might be people who are just um, going over a certain tax threshold. So, for example, if somebody is earning £55,000, £60,000 after making their NHS pension contributions, at that sort of level, they're possibly unlikely to have annual allowance and lifetime allowance issues, but they are suffering higher rate tax on, on the income that's over £50,000. So if they've got that ability to just put the, the excess over £50,000 into a private pension, that can represent good planning because they save the income tax that's suffering 40%, uh, sorry, save the income that's suffering 40%. And then in retirement, they should be able to extract that from their private pension at a much lower rate of tax. Similarly, um, we've talked about the concept of the personal allowance trap on, on this po- podcast before, and that's that area where um, income between 100 and 125,000 is effectively subject to income tax at 60%. So people in that sort of band, maybe earnings after NHS pension contributions are at 110,000. That's where you might look to make some private contributions. However, that's where you start to get into the realms of people at that sort of earning level, earnings levels are likely to come up against the annual allowance and the lifetime allowance. So it needs a bit more thought at that level. Um, not wanting to ramble on too much about private pensions, but just a couple of other points that I noted down. Um, one is if you've got uh, existing private pension benefits, which a lot of people will have, because I think back when the lifetime allowance, the annual allowance weren't as prevalent as they now are. There's lots of people who did go into um, certain private pension savings. What we see a lot with people in that in that area is questions around how how should I take the pension, um, and that's probably a, a conversation for another day. The one that I did want to mention is. Your private pensions can be a good way to pay any annual allowance tax charges that you might see. So when you do come up against an annual allowance tax charge, you've essentially got three options as to how you pay for that. One is to just pay for it like you pay any other tax liability out of cash that you've got to hand. The other, as we've talked about at length on these podcasts, is to make an NHS scheme pays election. And the third is to make a voluntary scheme pays election where you ask your private pension to pay the tax charge on your behalf. And in quite a few instances, that's that's advice that I've given because actually these private pensions are only going to suffer sort of lifestyle allowance tax charges and higher rate income tax otherwise. So using them for paying AA tax charges can be quite attractive. Um, And the last point, and then I'll uh, I'll stop talking about, about these private pensions, is um, don't forget that there are other options. Those the added years contracts aren't available now through the NHS, but there is still the option to buy additional pensions. And I think that can be an interesting option for some people. And you can go online and, and obtain quotes as to how much certain units of additional pension would cost within the NHS pension scheme. 
that's also something to consider when you're looking at additional pension funding. Love it. Um, that was great. And um, I'm going to throw in a fourth way to pay your annual allowance tax charge for 1920, which is the one-off uh, scheme pays because that deadline is coming up, right? Can we quickly, we've been shouting about this for ages and there's still doctors who don't know about it. Can somebody quickly mention that uh, for me so I can tick it off and say, We've tried as hard as we can to get everyone to do this. Yeah, I'll pick that one up. So um, um, basically, recap 2019-20, if you're in England and Wales, but unfortunately not in Scotland or, or in Northern Ireland, um, so just England and Wales, um, if this applies to clinicians and clinicians only. You're a clinician that was subject to an annual allowance charge. Um, if you opt for the scheme, the NHS pension scheme, to pay that tax on your behalf, then NHS England or uh, the Welsh equivalent will um, compensate you on retirement for the tax that was due or that, that they paid on your behalf. Um, the mechanism for compensating for that, well, we'll still wait to see it in practice. It's still not, I haven't seen any of my GPs actually had any compensation yet but or, or consultants, but we'll wait to see how that happens. So hopefully it will do. But really the two important things is two things must happen. Firstly, you must have submitted a scheme pays election to the pensions agency um, for that year. Um, and you may not have the information to complete that scheme pays election. Uh, so a lot of GPs particularly will not have a pension saving statement with the growth for that year. So if you are in any doubt whatsoever that you think you might be close to the limits, I would suggest that a um, an estimated protective scheme pays election is submitted. You can submit an estimated election, uh, and as long as you change it within four years, um, then it's valid. So you can submit it for uh, a very small amount. I think NHS pensions confirmed. You can submit one for a pound, um, if, if you know, uh, and, and that should be valid. Although we're seeing a few being rejected at the moment. But the second part is you then have to submit a compensation application form. Um, and I'll be careful not to go off and rant on this one of how stupid it is, but um, you still have to submit this form. So if you are working for a hospital trust, um, the form needs to be completed and needs to be signed off by the hospital trust to confirm you were clinician in 1920. And that form then get, has to be submitted uh, to the pensions agency side by the 31st of March 2022. So coming up soon. If you're a GP different matter altogether um, and a GP has to complete the form and has to send it to PCSE, submit it online to PCSE. PCSE will then verify that you were a GP. Um, so that's all they have to do. That's all PCSE are doing is verifying you're a GP. And this is where I go in the rant side is I really have no idea why they have to do this, but apparently they do. Um, then PCSE then notify um uh, NHS pensions that can confirm you're a GP. Now, just to warn you on the PCSE front, now when we were recording this um, podcast, and it may have changed by the time this goes out, we're recording this podcast, PCSE have various windows to submit this compensation uh, claim in. Uh, and there's one running from about mid-December through to mid-February. Um, we have asked PCSC, well, hang about, the deadline is 31st of March, so why do you need it by mid-February? And PCSC need it by mid-February because um, they have to have their statutory number of days to process this under their contract. Um, so it is an issue that's going to cause maybe a few GPs problem if you haven't submitted things by that February deadline. 
So uh, really just, yeah, just be really mindful of these deadlines are coming up fast. Um, hopefully your accountant has dealt with it or is dealing with it. And if you haven't got an accountant, um, then um, if you think you've got a problem, just get the forms in in an estimated form. Yeah, we've been shouting about this for ages because I saw some data saying 7,000 doctors are, are approximately are affected and only 2,500 have submitted the paperwork as yet. So, so there's a lot of doctors who are essentially missing out on the chance for the government or the NHS to pay your tax bill. And uh, I'm not sure what Andy would say about this, but if in general, if someone, anyone offers to pay your tax bill other than you, it's probably a good idea. Uh, it's probably yeah absolutely um yeah you, you, no point paying tax yourself if someone else will pay it for you yeah okay good i thought it was really important to get that in because the deadline's coming up and just um just don't miss the deadline um okay here's another thing that we get asked of a lot from doctors and that is that the nhs pension uh, affords reasonably generous death in service so if you die you get some oh you're not you your de- dependents get some money and uh, if you've got kids and stuff, you can get some payouts from that. So that means that doctors don't need any extra life cover or income protection, right, Nick? Yeah, absolutely, Tommy. Um, yeah, no, uh, no, unfortunately, um, as with all these things, it's not that straightforward, um, of course. Um, and, and I think rather than sort of just going into to listing uh, those benefits that the NHS scheme does provide, I think let, let's sort of think about it from a uh, a different angle. And this is what I'd always sort of encourage people I'm speaking to on a one-to-one basis to do is think about, right, okay, if, if something happens um, to you, um, what are the financial implications of that? And the main financial implication, if we're sort of, if we really boil it down, is your net income, i.e. the income that you take home each month, will stop. And that will stop through to whatever age that you were going to retire. So that is effectively the financial impact of of your death. So if we take a a 35-year-old doctor who's taking home £5,000 of net income a month, and they were going to work through to to age 60, you've got £60,000 a year of income stopping. And you've also, and, and that's for a 25-year period. So that's 1.5 million pounds of net cash that won't be received by your family. If you then add on to that the fact that there's also um, 25 years of pension accrual that isn't going to be um, that isn't going to be achieved, there's obviously a, a pretty significant financial hole there created by uh, by death. Um, and that's where I would always start with with people is to say, look, this is actually the financial implications, the cold heart financial implications of, of death. Um, and then what you do from that is you sort of go, okay, well, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, well, what, what provision is there already in place? What will kick in to help uh, um, fill that void um, that's been left by, by death? So... Is where we come to the NHS pension scheme, and, and as you alluded to, Tommy, there's a there's a death in service lump sum payable. So that's just a lump of cash that's payable to any um, any doctor that dies whilst active member of the pension scheme, and that's equivalent to two times pensionable earnings. Um, so if you're a consultant earning hundred thousand pounds a year, then there'll be a two hundred thousand pound lump sum paid out to your 
beneficiary upon your debt. And obviously that can be used to put towards paying down mortgage or creating a, a fund that can, can help support the family or whatever it might be. In addition to that, um, there is the provision of an adult dependent pension. So there's often some confusion about when this kicks in, but, but essentially it kicks in immediately. So even if, again, you're a 35-year-old um, consultant, you die at that point in time, your spouse then receives a pension for the rest of his or her life. Um, and that, depending on the pension scheme in question, is it between 33 and 50% of the tier two pension. Now, just to sort of try and explain what that is, um, the tier two pension is um, is the, the pension that you've currently got at the point of death, uprated by a certain number of years to reflect the fact that you haven't worked those years, but you would have done. It doesn't give you all of those remaining years, but the, different, the three different schemes give you different levels of uprating. So it's trying to part, partly make good your pension benefits. So they first do that rating and then they apply this 33 to 50% reduction um, to give the pension that's payable to uh, a spouse. So that, that's a positive thing. But when you do the math on that, even with the up rating, um, that is going to fall a long way short of the level of net income that, that you're currently taking home. Uh, and then the last one, which is relatively sort of minor point to note, is that if there are still children under the age of 23 and in full-time education, there is a children's dependent pension, which is also payable in addition to the lump sum and the, the spouse's, uh, or I should say adult dependence pension. Um, and that's just designed to help support the children through to the end of education, through to age 23. Um, so they are all positive things that help to fill that financial void that's left by debt. But the underlying message, as you started with, Tommy, is that actually it's nowhere near enough for most um, doctors. And you do need to look to the, the private um, insurance market to try and fill that void further. And the good news is that life insurance is relatively cheap, and that's purely uh, reflective of the fact that there's a relatively small chance that people people will die in these early years of life. But I think, as with any insurance, it's something that you, you don't want to be the only one that it happens to. You don't want your family to be the only one that it happens to. And that's why one of the first things I discuss with any doctor, especially those sort of under 50, and that's not to say it's not relevant for those over 50, but it's very relevant for those under 50, is, is working out, right, what is the liability that's created by your debt? How much of that liability is filled by the provisions that you've already got in place, i.e. private provisions and this NHS? And therefore, what type of insurance might you need on top of that to just ensure that the family can continue to, to live to the desired, desired standard if something did happen to you? Um, so that, that's the sort of uh, the nature of the conversations that we have in relation to the NHS death insurance benefits and, uh, and the need for private provision on top of that a lot of the time awesome a really good summary just a few things to clarify the, the benefits you're talking about there that the nhs pension provides that's if you're an active member right absolutely yeah and that's a really key point um in that going back to the discussions we were having around the annual allowance and the lifetime allowance 
we've seen an awful lot of people over the last five years just drop out of the NHS pension scheme because of, um, I mean, not all of them, was it a bad decision? Let's make that clear. But um, a lot of them might have read things on Twitter, as Andy said, or just sort of got fed up with seeing these pension saving statements that had big tax charges attached to them. And they opted out of the scheme and they didn't realise that that fundamentally changes the nature of of these benefits that you get through the pension scheme. And really, that's twofold. Uh, the, the changes are twofold that, that occur by you opting out. One, the death and service lump sum goes from being a multiple of your pensionable pay down to being a multiple of your pension. And by the very nature of, of that dynamic, the, the multiple of pension is going to be smaller than the, the, the pensionable pay figure. So in essence, by dropping out of the pension scheme, you're reducing the level of life insurance that's there for your family. Similarly, um, from a dependent pension perspective, as soon as you drop out of active membership of the pension scheme, that tier two provision, i.e. the uprating element to the years that you um, that you that you would have otherwise worked, that disappears and you simply get a dependence pension that's based on your current entitlement. So for younger doctors, um, that can be significant because somebody at 35, again, to use that example, won't have built up much uh, NHS pension. But that uprating factor to take them to retirement or give them a certain number of years that they would have accrued through to retirement is massive. And by dropping out, you you obviously lose that uprating factor. So, yeah, really key point there, Tommy. Don't forget about the impact that your pension membership decision can have on your life cover provision. And what you have to be really careful with is if you're one of those people who's hokey-tokeying, as we, we often refer to, i.e. dropping in and out of um, the pension scheme, that obviously is playing a bit of Russian roulette, really, with um, with the death benefit position. Because if you're out at the point at which, um, if you're out of the pension scheme and then something happens, then your benefits are naturally changed. And if you're in, then great, you get a better position. But... I think it's something you need to be really careful with with those pension decisions. Yeah, I think it's just good to clarify that. And it's a really good point that it's a little bit riskier for younger members because of the way that those benefits are calculated, as you said. But to sort of summarise, the NHS pension comes with some quite nice uh, extra death in service benefits, but it's very, very, very unlikely that that's going to be enough to cover all of your outgoings if you were to pass away or get ill. And also, is this a fair is this a fair statement that because you've got those benefits that come with the NHS pension, you may may uh, not need quite as much life or income or um, critical illness cover? Is that a fair statement, or am I putting words in your mouth there, Nick? Um, no, I think I think there's, there's definitely sense in that that comment. Um, from, I guess it, it depends what you, you're comparing it to, because naturally, the presence of a of a dependence pension means that the surviving spouse does have an ongoing stream of income that could perhaps support certain elements of life um, and therefore reduce the need for just a bigger lump sum. I think the other side of that coin is if you look to the private sector, most private companies will offer a debt and service arrangement that ranges from a four to ten times multiple of salary, so quite a notable difference um, from the NHS but they wouldn't have the dependence pension. So, yes, I think the presence of this dependence pension um, feature helps and maybe reduces the total level of cover. I still think for most people, um, if you looked at the, the void that's left by death, 
in very few cases does the NHS um, scheme cover all the bases. I think also, you know, again, it's you, you also have to factor in the stage of life you're at. That's really important in all of this. Um, and the stage in life your family are at, what financial commitments that comes with that. Um, so it is kind of one of those things you have to sort of fluidly review because it will constantly change throughout your career. Um, so a decision made in your early career may not be relevant if you're, say, two years off retirement. Um, but equally, a decision made two years off retirement will not be appropriate to someone in their, their mid-30s. Um, so, you know, taking time uh, and hopefully, given the, the interest in this podcast, generally in medics money, um, you, the kind of audience is, is the kind of audience that are engaged with their finances and taking time to review your sort of life status is really important. Yeah, really, really good point there, Andy. Um, all right. Wow. We, we covered so much ground again, like we always do. But I know that will have been so useful to our audience. And um, I just want to say again, once more, like, thanks for taking the time to do this. It's technical, detailed stuff. It takes a lot of time to prepare. It took us a while to schedule this podcast in because everyone's so busy. And um, also Nick had to call in on his phone because he was having some internet issues, but hopefully that worked out well. So thank you so much for your time. I definitely look forward to catching up again on our next episode. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, guys. See you soon.